We are thankful that you are here. This is the first, um, this is the first Sunday of February, which uh, as we celebrate um, the first Sunday of every month with the Lord's table, um, I would encourage you to even prepare yourselves even now for the receiving of those elements uh, that remind us. It, Jesus himself said it is to be a reminder of his death and resurrection for us. And so we will prepare ourselves for that as well as our time around the scriptures this morning. Um, this morning we will continue in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 6. That, that was quite a while ago. We're in chapter 5. We're in chapter 6. And our portion of scripture today will finalize the entirety of those household codes. That, that's the term that they use for all of these different relationships in the old Roman household and how people relate to one another. Remember, weeks ago, we spoke of a wife living in submission to her own husband. We spoke of a husband living in love for his wife, how children are to obey their parents and how fathers particularly are not to provoke their children to anger. The, the, the key difference Right? Between saying those things, meaning that this is a good way for us to conduct ourselves in the household, your typical household, Roman household, and how Christians are to conduct themselves is that we have mentioned and will constantly remind ourselves that it's not just, in a, it's not just commands to live in submission or to love or to obey, right? Or to be thoughtful about bringing up um, little ones in, in discipline and instruction. But all of those things that we are commanded in our human relationships are commanded with a singular axiom, right? A singular principle that drives a nail through every single one of those points. And that's that this is unto the Lord. Well, what makes Ephesians 5 and 6 in the household code so different from what you have in like a lot of the ethical, philosophical writers of the, of, of the Greek era or even the Roman era that spoke of similar household codes of the importance of wives submitting and husbands loving and children obeying, is that what we are instructed here as Christians, as those redeemed by the blood of Christ, is that we are to do this because of who Christ is because of what he has accomplished for us. So let me, let me reiterate those same commands that we have been following in the household. Wives, according to verse 22 of chapter 5, are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It is part of her, it is part of her honoring of Jesus Christ, her master. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's not just an emotional love. It's not just a romantic love. It's not just a love of some sort of human affection. Many human beings are capable of that. It is a love that is driven because Christ loved his church and demonstrated the degree of his love for the church. It is driven by Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's not just obey for the sake of peace in the home and obedience overall and for the sake of your self-discipline. No, the key thing is that they're obeying their parents with a sense of who God is, that he is their master, he is their Lord. This is what is right in the eyes of our God. And then fathers, we said, do not provoke your children to anger. That seems like wisdom. 
But the second part of it, the positive affirmation is, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, of the Lord. Do you see that that is the driving issue? That is the one thing that characterizes all of these authority, submissive relationships. If we are in a human relationship, there is probably some amount of you're in charge of this, I'm in charge of that. And in all of that, we are to conduct ourselves not just as normal people, right? Trying to conduct ourselves orderly for the sake of efficiency, but ultimately because there is a master that we serve. And so that's why in some ways, as we come to this last part, which in many ways seems the least applicable for us today, talking about slaves and masters, in some ways this highlights, uh, because of its difficulty for our Christian brothers and sisters back in that day, and how it might apply to us in this day, of all the circumstances, and all of these circumstances can be challenging, but of all the ones that I, I've, we can find, at least in modern-day society, to be unacceptable, it would be that of slavery and master relationships, slave and master relationships. And yet, even to that, um, the Scripture speaks to how we are to serve our earthly masters because we serve our ultimate master. We are to be careful if we are masters to do the same, to be thoughtful, to be careful about how we conduct ourselves with our human servants. Why? Because we know that there is one master over our servant and over us and there's no partiality with him. The Lord is still the guiding principle of how Christians conduct themselves regardless of what circumstances they find themselves in. And I think that's the, 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 I think the pivotal thing for us to come away with this morning when we're talking about slaves and masters. To give you an idea of where we're headed with this, is just two major points. One, to those Christian slaves, right? And one, to those Christian masters. And we will unpack that in a moment. But let me read us our passage. Let's pray. And let us uh, consider what the Word of God has to say for us on this, um, um, on this Communion Sunday. Let's look at Ephesians 6, starting in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your scriptures this morning. And even as we prepare our hearts to receive of Holy Communion, may the singular thing that we take away is the centrality of the Lordship of Christ in our lives. Fathers, uh, Father, I, we recognize that even as we um, consider all of these commands to different members of the household, um, many of us might find ourselves in circumstances that are challenging. Wives might find it difficult to submit to husbands. Husbands might find it difficult to love their wives. 
children trying to obey, fathers trying to bring them up in the things of the Lord, and bondservants and masters. And Lord, we recognize and we ask you to help us to see with clarity the, the truth that scripture calls us to do these things not out of the willpower of our own uh, abilities, our mental facilities, our capacities to control ourselves and, and to kind of press ahead with our will, but you call us to do these things because Christ is worth it. And I pray that that would be true for us, that regardless of what we put our hands to, no matter what relationships we find ourselves in, that Christ is our ultimate motive. And the main thing, that the main person, the main issue in every human relationship, because we want to please our master, because he is worthy. And so we praise you for all the grace that you have given to us, and help us now to see in scripture, Lord, principles that would guide and help us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember that Ephesians, we looked at the first three chapters so many months ago. And it really built a theology of what God has done in saving us. Uh, redemption throughout all of human history. The fact that we are sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. And that Christ, by grace, not because of anything we deserved, has rescued us from our sin. And having transitioned from that gospel, theological richness, starting in chapter 4... Paul begins to pivot in this letter to those practical concerns. How does this flesh out in our lives? And the first thing he says in Ephesians 4.1 as the turning point from teaching to practice is this statement. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul had been setting up what that worthy calling is. For three chapters, and by the time we get to chapter four, he is digging down into what it means for you to live that way, to walk that out. What it means to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel and your salvation. And from there, by the time we get to chapter five, there has been statements about walking right, in a manner that is appropriate to those that are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 5 said, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So it begins, chapter 5 began with the ideas of walking in love. Later in chapter 5, this idea of walk appears again in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So there you again, you have this idea of walking, but walking in a way that demonstrates wisdom. So by the time we get to these household codes, these are the expression how you walk out a life that is wise, we're going backwards, that is loving, right? That is bound in the things of Christ, and that is worthy of those that have been called by the grace of God to be his own. So th th this is what th all of this has led us to. So by the time we get here to slaves and masters, no difference. It's the same thing. This is how you walk in a way that honors your true master. We should say a few words about slavery because, uh, one, slavery is evil, right? We could say that. Maybe we amen that, right? We can agree upon that. Um, and in the Roman Empire, um, slavery was not just commonplace, it was everywhere. 
In the Roman Empire, it's estimated that there were 60 million slaves. 60 million. You, you guys get the idea of a million, right? That's, that's like a lot of things, right? A lot of human beings. And 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire and in large cities like Rome, Corinth, or here in Ephesus, a, approximately one-third of the population were slaves. Can you imagine if we just, in this room, if we just divided up a third of us, or if you look to the person on your left and right, one of you three is a slave. Like, this is how common slavery was during that time. And of course, there were, there were attitudes towards slavery that were abusive and wrong, particularly, and, and actually you could divide that in, up into group, groups. The, the old ancient Greeks wrote about slavery as if a slave was a thing, initial property. Uh, Aristotle's um, Nicomachean Ethics, he wrote this. This is Aristotle. This guy's supposed to be smart and ethical, right? But he says, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Your slave is like a wrench. You just use it. It's property. That's how the Greeks thought about it. But by the time you get to the Roman Empire, they think about slaves a little bit differently. And there's a number of reasons for that. They thought of slaves as human beings, right? Greeks thought of them as property, but in Roman society, a free person could sell himself into slavery to cover his debts. You can say, well, you know, that guy's pretty rich. Does he need help, right, running his household? And he would offer his services to him and say, hey, can I, can I become your slave for this sum so that you could pay off my debt so my family would be free of my debt? And that would happen. We might call that indentured servanthood or something. That, that, that's how most of the slave, slave you know, that's how most slaves began that life of being indebted, right, to an earthly master. They could regain their freedom. In fact, uh, um, it's estimated that about 50% of Roman slaves were freed. They become freemen, right? They become freed from their slavery before the age of 30. So slavery then was a lot, diff a lot different from what our thoughts of slavery are because of our, of our very wicked American-style slavery. And by the way, back then in Roman society, slaves were not become slaves because they were of a certain cultural background or ethnic background. It wasn't by race or by people groups. It was literally by, I need, I need assistance, I need material help. That's how most became slaves. And once you were not a slave and you were a freedman, you were considered, you were even given potentially, if your master get, helped you get it, Roman citizenship. You were as much a citizen as anybody else. Listen, that, that is not to suggest that I think that, you know, the Roman way of slavery is a good thing or that we should bring that back. It's, it's still wrong, Right? And any thoughts that could open up a, an abusive system to suggest that human beings made in God's image can be used as tools is obviously wrong. So the question is, well, why did the New Testament not outright condemn it? Why, why didn't Paul just come out and just say, hey, listen, you know, slavery is sin. Could you guys all stop it? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is practical is if in a city, a third of your working population, or a third of your population, one third of your population, and about 90% of your workforce, 80% to 90% of your workforce are slaves, if everyone stops, right? If everyone's just, okay, we're all done being slaves, 
um, that economy like becomes riotous. I don't mean that it just falls like prices fall, et cetera. I mean, I mean, you have a food shortage if all the slaves, 90% of them working in agriculture, just stop making food or ter- taking care of flocks or, or, or fields, right? You have food shortages where there's millions of people and, and all kinds of chaos might ensue. Now, that's a practical reason. I don't think that's the main reason. It is because... Um, Um, I think the New Testament, what it does, I think, well, and what Paul himself does well, he speaks of slavery, not by outright condemning it, but by establishing something that will be deeper and will resonate deeper, especially amongst Christians, will influence society and will ultimately lead to the end of slavery altogether. Uh, Historians are uncertain, right? They, They don't get it, why slavery just kind of began to fade from the time of the Roman Empire, right, throughout all of uh, Europe and extending Asia Minor. I, I really do believe part of it is the influence of Christianity. If you think about what Paul speaks about when he speaks of slaves, Christian slaves, he speaks of them like they are our brothers, like they have the same, right, standing before our same God. They are not just fellow human beings. They are fellow brothers and sisters Right, uh, receiving the same gospel with the same, you know, kingdom privileges as us. So in Galatians three twenty eight, speaking of that richness of gospel salvation, he says, "There's neither Greek nor Jew." He's saying it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter if you're currently enslaved or not. There's no male or female. If you are all one, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As far as our gospel standing is concerned, there is an eradication of all of these things that divide us, that separate us. Does it mean that males stop being males? No, of course not. The Jew is still a Jew, right? The slave is still a But in terms of who they are before the Lord in salvation, all one. In fact, the book of Philemon is an interesting, um, interesting highlight in terms of the concept of slavery in the New Testament because Paul is writing to Philemon, a wealthy landowner and Christian, and he is sending back to Philemon Onesimus, a runaway slave who is now in his runaway, right, has converted to Christianity. And in his conviction of thinking, okay, I, I ran away from my slavery Right from Philemon, and um, I'm supposed to be arrested if I'm caught. What do I do? And in pastoral insight, Paul is sending this runaway slave back to his earthly master. But he reminds them of this in Philemon 15 and 16. He says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Paul sends back a runaway slave, now converted to Christianity, to this Christian master, Philemon, and reminds him that perhaps this is why the Lord allowed him to leave, so that he might come to faith in Christ. And now that you are reunited, that you might recognize that you receive back more than a runaway slave, but a brother in Christ. See, those sentiments, I think, begin to erode the concept of slavery from society as a whole. I think, I think uh, Christianity has much by way of its influence in those, in those arenas. We know for, 
for certain, whether we're talking about England, right, and their abolition movement, and the United States, it was Christians all along pressing hard, right, against the society and against the evil of human slavery. All that to say, right, is, um, is that slavery then and now uh, is still wickedness, right, or it can accomplish much wickedness, but the scriptures don't call us out of the, the darkness or the difficulty of our current circumstances. Like I said, like some of you may know of people or you yourselves might feel like you're in marriages that are difficult, that you're in parental or child relationships that are difficult, that are hard. And instead of taking us away from those things, the Lord instead, I think, offers us words that remind us that we live for something greater than our singular circumstance. Circumstances are circumstances, right? They are not eternal. Our Lord and salvation is eternal. Christianity doesn't promise us a release from all of our present circumstances, but it does promise that our Lord is sufficient and will empower us to endure any and every circumstance that we face. The application of uh, this section on slaves and masters, I know that's a long intro to our portion of scripture on, on a Lord's Day when we have to do communion. But just to kind of give ourselves a good and deep understanding of all the things that we're speaking of. But I think the, 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 the best analogy, the best analogy uh, or application of the principle of slaves and masters in, uh, in Ephesians 6 is, is probably that of military enlistment, Right? You enlist, you are voluntarily, voluntarily enlisting, and you have some earthly masters. They're called like drill sergeants and other guys above you, and they literally tell you what to do. And unless it's blatantly illegal or immoral, you, you, you have to do what they have to do. It comes with consequences if you do not, right? Like, like that would probably be the closest analogy of slavery, right? I mean, again, not to... Not to suggests that there isn't such things as human trafficking and slavery in the world. There is, and we should, as Christians, oppose such things, right? But it's to say that in our society, in a, the most legitimate kind of application of these, you know, slave and master concepts is probably in our military. But as a further application, maybe not as direct, is probably our employer-employee relationships. You, you live in authority under someone. Or maybe even as a student to a teacher, as an athlete to a coach. Like, you live in these authority structures. And, and yes, they're a little bit different. And, and that's why I'm saying the application is a little bit distant. Because at least in the Roman society, this is all under one house. Right? This is mom and dad, husband and wife, children, and slaves. We're all in one household. We're in one big you know, happy family. I mean, that's, that's how Scripture is speaking of them, and that's why Scripture speaks of it at this particular point. But listen, let, let's, let's begin to unpack what Scripture says about these and see if we can make some application to our own lives and our own relationships that are based on authority. The, the first principle, I think, in verses 5 to 7 is, is for the slave, the Christian slave, and it's to obey your master. And notice the way that I, I thought of that was, was to put that in the singular, because as you read this, you begin to realize very soon that it's not really about their earthly masters, 
which it is a little bit about, but it's about their heavenly master, singular, who would be Christ the Lord. And it begins here in verse 5. Servants, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. The ESV uses bond servants, and I think it's because it's more palatable, right? It's our Greek term, douloi, which means slaves. It can mean servants and house servants, and it has a pretty broad you know, usage in, in terms of any of those that serve under some masters of some form. The ESV is trying to use the term servant, but bond servant, that combination of bondage and servant put together, tells you that it expresses some kind of temporary nature of this enslavement. That they are placed in servitude, right, by some obligation, and that's how they're trying to, to I don't know, soften maybe, you know, the term slave. But it's the term slave. And it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. The word obey is the same word that was used for children, that they are to obey their parents in the Lord. It is a word that means literally to listen to, but it means listen to in the way that we as parents tell our kids, listen to me, not audibly connect what I'm saying, but obey this, walk this out, hear what I say and make it happen. Slaves are commanded in scripture, Christian slaves, to obey their earthly masters, to obey their earthly masters. Um, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So I think the first point to make in verse 5 is they, they, these Christian slaves are called to obey as they would to Christ. We can't miss that because it's not just a matter of telling servants to, to obey, but to obey because of Christ. And it is all of one part, one whole, one ambition, one goal. The, the bondservant, the Christian slave, is to obey their earthly masters. And notice the earthly to remind them that it's circumstantial for this lifetime. Their earthly masters, they are to obey them as they would unto Christ. Because ultimately, they are bondservants, not to this earthly master. That's not eternal. They are bondservants to Christ. That is eternal. There's a couple of things that are mentioned here about the attitude in which we are to walk out obedience to our earthly masters. One, with fear and trembling. Now, at first sight, this might feel like this is obey your earthly masters with, oh, as if the reverence that we would give to God. And that's not what it's saying, I don't think. The, the term fear and, and trembling is used, especially the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is used regularly, so regularly throughout the Old Testament and into the New and Paul is fond of it, and it's used in relationship to our attitude in the presence of God. So think of it this way. It's not so much that you are to obey your earthly masters as if they are God. They are not. You are to obey them as if you are in the presence of God as you obey them. You look at that boss. You look at your drill sergeant. You look at that coach or that teacher that team leader, whatever it is, as you look at that person and you recognize that God has sovereignly placed that individual in authority over you, your obedience to that individual is ultimately a reflection of your reverence for God. Not for them, 
They may not deserve fear and trembling, but the fear and trembling that you, that you have this attitude of honoring and worshiping and being thoughtful and careful about who God is, that attitude you carry into your authority relationships on earth and how you respond to authorities on earth is a reflection of do you know or do you act like you are in the presence of God? So, so if you are, you know, kind of smacking back at your, your teacher or your professor, you know, you're telling that officer, like, what his problem is and don't he have some real people, real criminals to catch and all that kind of stuff. When we're throwing back that kind of attitude, it is in the presence of our God and Savior. And so here, Paul is saying, bondservants, Christian slaves, obey your earthly masters, with fear and trembling, not fear and trembling for those earthly masters, but with an attitude of fear and trembling that goes to the Lord as if the Lord is watching because he is. The second part is with a sincere heart, meaning that from an attitude or from the inner part of us that is sincere and that actually cares. The word sincerity is derived from a word that means uh, undivided or single, or like it's of one substance. It's singular. The point is, it's not duplicitous. It's not hypocritical. It doesn't have an ulterior motive. There, in other words, there isn't two or three other angles that I'm aiming for as I approach obedience to this earthly authority. Instead, with sincerity of heart, means that I am doing it honestly. I'm doing it sincerely. I'm doing the best I can because that's what I'm supposed to do. And I'm not angling for something. I'm not doing it so that they would recognize me and give me some thanks. I'm not doing it so that, you know, that, that human beings might do something that would benefit me. I'm not doing it so that I look better in anyone's eyes. I'm doing it because there is a Savior, and he is Lord of my life. And that's why it says, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. 1 Timothy 6, 1 says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Listen, there's an application for us in terms of Christians, right, living under the authority of a boss, a teacher, a coach, or whatever it is. Um, we have a, the potential of taking the name of God and his teachings, specifically talking about doctrine and scripture or maybe the gospel itself. And we could make those things and those re the reputation of those things be reviled. You guys, if you have been working long enough or you are following sports at all, we have known individuals that make a profession of faith and they claim Jesus Christ. I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And then what proceeds from their mouth or their attitudes from that point on makes you wonder, wait, like, like my, my Jesus and Savior, my Lord? Because you talk like, like he doesn't matter. There can be a reviling of the person, the reputation of God himself and of the gospel when those that call themselves Christians act like absolute unbelievers in the face of authority. Bond servants, Christian servants, obey your earthly masters as you would the Lord, right? Be, because as you do that, according to 1 Timothy 6.1, you protect <clears throat> the reputation of Christ and the gospel. The next verse in 1 Timothy 6 says this. Those who have believing masters 
Okay, so what if I'm a believing servant and I have a believing master? It says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If I have a Christian, right, supervisor, and he or she knows I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, we might be tempted to think, dude, we're all Christians in this room. You know, let's all go easy on each other. Let's take care of each other. And, and I think the scripture would speak against that and with that kind of attitude. It says, no, don't be disrespectful on the ground that they're your brother or sister in Christ. In fact, if anything, you should serve even all the better. You should do even more. You should strive to be a better example of an excellent and sincere worker because they are your brother or sister in Christ and you honor them as you honor your Savior. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So all of this reminds us, it's, it's a reminder to us that in our earthly authority, submissive relationships that we obey, but we do that as we would unto Christ. The Lord is the one that is ultimately honored. That's what we mean by obey your master. The second part in verse 6 is kind of a repeat of the same with a slightly different emphasis. Look at verse 6. It says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Two negatives that kind of uh, parallel each other. One is, you know, this idea of uh, doing something um, by way of eye service. The term is not found anywhere else in antiquity before the writing of the New Testament. All that means is that Paul probably made up the word. He took two words, eye, right, service, and put those together and said, you know exactly what that means. And you probably do, even in our English, is, is I say, hey, when you do work, don't do it by way of eye service. You know exactly what we mean. Don't, don't do it so that some human being sees you at that moment and you seem to be working really hard. And as soon as their eyes are averted, then you can slow up. Don't do what is insincere by way of being a people pleaser. That's the next term that kind of lines up with this. That you are serving for the, for the sake of, of those that are watching you. <clears throat> looking good when people are watching, but, but doing differently when they are not. We are tempted, right? Are we not? When our boss says, hey, listen, I got to go home early or I got to go to that other site because uh, there's stuff to do. You take care of things here. And you're like, yeah, I take care of things here. I'm going to put my feet up, take it easy, play Tetris on the computer, right? Like, like it's easy for us to fall into this kind of, well, if they don't know, that's okay. But the whole point is there is someone that knows, Right? It's our master, our real master, our ultimate master. And so not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. This is a good expression. Um, it says rendering, right? Rendering service with a good will um, as to the Lord and not, not men. You have Doing the will of God from the heart, like, like a recognition that what we do in submission to our authorities, we do because this is God's will for us. That God has placed that person over us. 
When I was at um, an undergrad at UCLA, um, I, some of you guys know, I had to pay my way through school. So I had a part-time job at the AES UCLA student store. And um, um, in the beginning, um, you know, I was low on the totem pole. So my job was to, to reshelve like literally stacks of books. So I'd come to work. They, they paid well, right, because it's an it's a, it's a on-campus job, and I could pay for my tuition because tuition was crazy cheap back in those ancient days, right? Um, I think when we started, just to rub it in, I think it was like 400 bucks a quarter for tuition. I know. Isn't that awesome? And so a part-time job, you could easily pay for that in your books. So I'd come into work, go into the back warehouse room, and there'd literally be stacks from the ground up, like taller than me, like maybe like 50 stacks of that. And it's all the books that people have taken, looked at, left somewhere else, and then they just stack them up and put them in the back. And then the, you know, the lowest person on the totem pole comes in the next day and goes, dude, there's like 200 books. Take a stack, right, on a little wheelie cart, and you go, and you take one, and go, okay. And you go, and then you, it's like a library. You go, and you put it there, and then you go find another one. What is this section? It's over, okay. And so it literally takes you hours to clear, like, maybe, you know, 30 books, because you got to go here. It's not like they organize it in, in where it's supposed to go. It's just stacks and stacks of books. And the, the, the difficult thing of that, that job was not the tedium. It was boring. That part was true. But it was my boss. He did nothing. <laughs> Literally. Uh, he would sit there. Like, I would see him. He'd be drinking something. And he'd be gone for a while. And it's like, hey, where, where did, you know, his, main, his name may or may not be Tony. <laughs> it, it is Tony. But, but where, where did Tony go, right? It's like, oh, he's on his break. He's on his break. He was, like, the whole time I keep coming back from our books, he's just sitting there not doing anything. He's not even at a computer terminal. He's just drinking his Coke. And now he's on a break? What was that? <laughs> I can't imagine what this guy's vacation is like, right? Like, it's, what in the world is going on? And, and it wasn't just me. I thought those things. I didn't say that out loud. But as I got to know other employees, they all felt like Tony was that dude, right? Doesn't work hard. Why is he our boss? I mean, all of that kind of stuff. And so God has sovereignly placed that Tony as my boss. And even as my boss, and the bad boss that he was, and the bad example that he was, nevertheless, that circumstance helped me pay for college. It was God's will and his provision for me. It wasn't ideal. Just as your human relationships and your authority relationships are, are not ideal. The ideal is not the emphasis. The circumstance is not the emphasis. The will of God and what God in his sovereign wisdom for you, where he has placed you, the teacher he has assigned you, the boss that you have to report to, the team leader that you're given, all of these are an expression of God's sovereign and intentional will for your life. That's why doing God's will as a bondservant of Christ, verse 6, ends with doing the will of God from the heart. Obeying, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, is working out the will of God with sincerity of heart, believing that the Lord knows what he's doing. It's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. In verse 7, um, serving 
with goodwill as to the Lord. And this is what I was going to get to in terms of rendering service. It's a great term. It means it's a, it's a word that is only here in the New Testament. It's a word that means to do something with wholeheartedness, with goodness intended, right? Paul is doubling down on the idea that there is sincerity and thoughtfulness in the service of Christian slaves. They're to be zealous for service and doing what is good. And not because their human master deserves it. No, it says rendering service with all goodwill. Serving with all like intelligent, intentional, wholehearted kind of zealousness for doing what is good. To do that as unto the Lord and not to man. Our ultimate ambition in terms of those, those authority relationships, those structures, when we submit to someone, is to honor Christ. Whether or not that boss over us honors Christ, the Lord will deal with that, right? Whether or not the person that is above you, that has authority over you, um, is dealing righteously with you, the Lord will handle that. You, on your part, are seeking to do what is good because that is what is good in the eyes of our Lord, not in the eyes of men. It is about doing goodwill with sincerity and wholeheartedness, because we are doing it unto the Lord. The, the fourth point is verse 8. <clears throat> Knowing the Lord accounts. Now you notice that we have been following a very direct pattern. And I, I just now noticed that I put point one, five through 7. But it should be 5 through 8. right? But 5, 6, and 7 have this refrain of obeying as you would Christ. Doing God's will as a bondservant of Christ. Serving with goodwill as unto the Lord. So you have the Lord as the motivation for all of these things. And then when we get to verse 8, this knowing, this participle that says, because this is what we believe, it tells us something about our conviction and what we're having, what we're placing our faith in. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. This is kind of the, the backbone of it all, right? If there's, if there's one main emphasis, is that it's unto Christ, right? It's as you would Christ, as bondservant of Christ, as to the Lord. But by the time we get to verse 8, this is the explanation. This is, this is the theological, right? The, the statement that we place our faith in that motivates us to do right. Knowing, believing, having conviction, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Whatever you get by way of that submission to that earthly authority, maybe you get a paycheck from that. Maybe you get better grades from that. Maybe you get recognition or you accomplish something that you're trying to do. Maybe you get teamwork and success out of that. Whatever it is, that, that's an earthly reward. But Paul will remind us that our conviction, what we know, what we believe, where we place our faith, is that anything, whatever good anyone does, catch that phrase, whatever good anyone does, it includes everything and everyone, each and every good thing that we do, God takes account. There's something tremendously helpful to us to remember that God knows and that he takes account of everything that we do. Your human boss, your teacher, your coach may never notice that extra that you do or how hard you are working. They might not care. right? They're, not, they're in it for themselves, not really for you. 
Your earthly masters, right, may not care about how hard you work or don't work. They just want the bottom line. They just want to see that you are listening to them. Or they might just want you under their thumb. Whatever it is, that's fine. But whatever good anyone does, I mean, those are, those are wonderfully, right, conflated terms. Like each and every good thing that any one of us does, the Lord takes notice of those things. He sees those things. This he will receive back from the Lord. The Lord repays. He rewards. Whether he's free or slave, God still rewards. And so that feeling like, man, that's not fair, you might be correct. That might not be fair. But don't worry. God takes an account, and he makes all things right. We need to move quickly on this last one. The second point, masters do the same. So we have all of these, like, obey your master, right, for Christian slaves. And then we have masters, Christian masters now, right? We have a singular verse to kind of guide them in their relationship to their servants. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with them. I'll say a couple things here. Do the same to them. What is this surprising exhortation to Christian masters? To do the same? Are you supposed to be a servant to them as they are servants to you? Probably not. I think what Paul is trying to say is you adopt the same manner of attitude and action. Fear and trembling. You're in the presence of God. Sincere heart. Doing things as unto the Lord. As a bondservant of Christ. Particularly the second part of verse 6. Right? You have... The verbal form, we have another form of, of the same verb. Do the same, command here is masters do the same. And that term for doing the same is used there as in doing the will of God from the heart. They are to be the same in terms of the attitude and conduct, reverence and care for their human slaves. Sounds kind of crazy. But Christian masters are to be different in terms of the way that they conduct their authority. They are, in fact, they are to stop, right? They're to give up on threatening. Look, there, there is probably no more simplistic method of getting someone under your command to obey you than just threaten them, to intimidate them, to, to manipulate them to do what you want by way of aggressiveness or intimidation or threatening. This is a principle that all earthly authorities right, need to heed, and that's that they are to treat, right, fellow human beings as fellow human beings. For Christians, if you are a boss, right, and I don't mean that like you're a boss, man, you may be, but I'm saying, but if you are in authority over others as a supervisor, a teacher, right, as a, you know, an employer, one of the things that should characterize your Christianity in your relationship with them is that you don't seek to threaten or manipulate their behavior. That's a, that, is, that is unbecoming of a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus was recognized in the authority of what he spoke, but he spoke truth in love. There were occasions where he warned sinners. There's no question about that. But he never used, right, manipulative tactics. He never felt, felt heavy-handed. And he never sought to subjugate obedience. Christian, if you have a role of authority in anyone's life, your goal is to be winsome, not harsh. 
right? Because the gospel is winsome, not harsh. Because the Lord is winsome. And even in his harshness and judgment, his, that judgment is absolutely right and true. He is so gracious and kind, even to the wicked. The rain falls on the wicked, right? Unbelievers still have some happy homes and good memories. God is good. Here's the last part. And you'll see that it, it kind of parallels the, the same to our, um, our obey your masters for Christian slaves. The last part of obey your master for Christian slaves is knowing the Lord accounts. And this is the same thing, knowing the Lord accounts. Look at that, that, that last part. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Our Lord is not just our Lord, but he is Lord over all. He is our master and he is their master. And he is in heaven, meaning that there is no authority above him. So whatever authority you have, it cannot compare. Whether you are the master of a small household, you're the the king of an empire, God is still the one that is enthroned in heaven. And our obedience, our enacting of authority, everything that we do is under his purview. And there's no partiality with him. He protects those that cannot protect themselves. And so if we're taking advantage of people because they seem helpless, then that is opposite of what the Lord have us to do. We are to protect those that can't protect themselves. And so there's no partiality with God. He sees and he accounts. We are to be motivated by that, to believe that, and to act that out. Because there's no partiality with him. When all is said and done, right, the key in all of these commands, in whatever applications we have, whatever authority relationship application we have, it, it is all based on the fact that there is a God and we believe in him. And we believe that we should act ourselves, right, in a manner that is according to what he would desire for us. That we would walk in a manner worthy of our gospel call. That we would act out love in the way that we walk. That we walk in wisdom and we demonstrate that wisdom in how carefully we conduct ourselves in this life with our relationships. Why? Because the Lord is worthy. Whether you have those in authority over you, you are in authority of others, our Lord is worthy. Well, the worthiness of Jesus Christ comes from not just the fact that he is enthroned, but because he has died and risen for our sins.